Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. My title for today's sermon is A Tale of Two Kings. Very early on in my life as a believer, I read a book entitled A Tale of Three Kings. Now, this book examined the leadership of King Saul, of King David, and of King Absalom, though it is arguable that Absalom ever was truly a king. Nevertheless, this book, as I remember it, compared and contrasted these three kings of Israel and evaluated their leadership. And then it addressed many issues coming out of that comparison, issues of pain, issues of loss, issues of heartache at the hands of other believers. I do not remember the details well. I cannot even recommend this book to you. And yet I remember being moved and challenged by its comparison of monarchs. Now our passage today really, I think, is a comparison of monarchs. Before the tales of the kings of Israel begin in earnest, the author of 1 Samuel wants to expose something. He wants to expose the frailty and the fallenness of Saul. And he does so by comparing Saul, who would soon be king, against the king that Israel has rejected, their sovereign king, God. And so let's begin this morning looking at the fallenness and frailty of Saul. The author of 1 Samuel, I believe, paints a picture of Saul in which the reader is meant to perceive a less than desirable candidate for kingship. Saul is fallen, he's a sinner, and he is frail. And this is an indication that his reign will be one of weakness and wickedness. Commentator Bergen put it this way, one function of the Saul narratives is to depict the spiritual unfitness of the man who would serve as Israel's first king. The first information we get about Saul in this narrative is his lineage. He is the son of a Benjamite named Kish, which means he himself is a Benjamite. Now, the tribe of Benjamin, a small tribe located between the powerful tribes of Judah and Ephraim, might have been considered an ideal choice for Israel's first king. And it certainly would be a great location for a centralized regime because Jerusalem was located within the boundaries of Benjamin, even though it, is yet, it had yet to been conquered. So where Saul came from mattered. You know, Canada has had 23 prime ministers, 23 leaders of the nation. Four of them, very early on, were born in Britain. But of the 19 born in Canada, only two of them were born west of Ontario. Now, when it comes to leading a nation, where you are born from, where you come from is significant. However, if we look a little deeper at the tribe of Benjamin, we see that the author of 1 Samuel, in beginning with this fact about Saul, is likely intending to make us question the choice of Saul. I don't think he's trying to put him in a good light. Benjamin, Benjamin was a notorious tribe, 
And in the very recent history of Israel, from the book of Judges, Benjamin had nearly been eliminated because of the evil in their tribe as the rest of the nation warred against them. And Saul, by his own admission, comes from a clan which is the least of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Reinforcing this idea that Saul is not to be seen as an ideal candidate is the fact that he was from Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is a Benjamite town whose citizens committed one of the most heinous acts in the history of Israel. We looked at this in the book of Judges. The people of Gibeah desired to violate sexually another man from Israel who was sojourning through their town. They didn't end up violating him, but they did violate the sojourner's concubine, and they ended up killing her. Now, adding to this, as we talked about last week, Israelites would also understand. They would know from their history that rulers and leaders were supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, not of Benjamin. And so I think really, if we diagnose this, we're off to a bad start here with Saul. Then the author turns to the physical appearance of Saul. And I think our reflection on this is, oh, this is definitely something positive. But again, there's reason to suspect the author has something else in mind. We read, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, there have been many surveys done that indicate an aspiring leader's height will impact how he is perceived and how successful he will be. And the bottom line of those sur- surveys is the taller, the better. For example, I read this week an article online on The Guardian that indicated a survey done in Fortune 500 companies, the chief executive officer of those companies were almost 10 times more likely to be over six foot two than the rest of the citizens of America. Another university ha- or another survey had university students actually draw out what an ideal leader looked like. And beside that ideal leader, they would draw an average citizen. And the students drew leaders who were 10% taller than the average citizen. So height, that is being tall, is usually associated with strong leadership. What's interesting is that's not how the Bible portrays tallness. Although Saul's height would normally in our world be considered an asset, the narrator may have included these details as a subtle indictment of Israel's first king. There is no other Israelite, no other Israelite leader who is specifically noted as being tall. Did you realize that? Saul's the only one. And tallness, particularly in the history of Israel, in the Bible, is almost always associated with Israel's enemies. We see it in Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 9, and we'll, we'll see it in 1 Samuel 17. And so this characteristic might actually be the author's way of raising doubts in the mind of the readers about Saul. 
I would suggest that the narrative goes on to lay out for us Saul's inadequacy, his inadequacy to serve Israel as king. And I think this comes in the form of the missing donkeys. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the most significant patriarchs, the most significant leaders in the history of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, they're all depicted as skillful shepherds. Yet here is Saul, and he can't find the donkeys. He's inept and incompetent as a shepherd. And in his failing search for the donkeys, Saul, as opposed to his servant, is the first to give up. He gives up. We can't find them. We need to go home. He has no idea how to continue their efforts, how to accomplish what his father has given him as his task. And yet his servant, not Saul himself, but his servant, shows initiative and shows resourcefulness, the kind of attributes you might look for in a leader. The servant suggests enlisting enlisting the help of God's prophet, Samuel. Saul was reluctant and hesitant even with the idea The suggestion there that Saul had no money to pay the prophet for his services, this isn't a practice prescribed in scripture, but was a practice in the Near East in the time of Israel's monarchy. And he was unprepared. And yet his servant had anticipated that they might need some money. And so he had funds and silver with him. The servant is saving the day here for Saul. We know from scripture that preparedness is seen as a positive attribute. It's from the Old Testament, a a proverb like 24, 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. A wise man is prepared. But Saul, the son of a wealthy farmer, was not prepared. And he pursued this shepherding task, but he didn't do it very well. In fact, his shortcomings are covered by the resourcefulness of his servant. So not only is he unprepared, he's also pictured here as naive or ignorant or perhaps absent-minded. We all should know from earlier chapters in 1 Samuel that all of Israel knew that 1 Samuel was a prophet, that he was their leader. Yet Saul seems to be unaware of this option. He needs divine help. Did he not know that Samuel resided nearby? Now think about this. Him not knowing Samuel lived nearby where he was would be like some of our people who grew up in the 2010s, not knowing that Justin Bieber came from Stratford. Of course we know this. I found out this week he was also born in St. Joseph's Hospital, so there you go. But Samuel, or sorry, Saul, seemed to not know that the great prophet in Israel lived nearby. Didn't occur to him. The fact that Saul doesn't even suggest looking for divine guidance of any kind, I think casts him in a bad light, at least in regards to his future kingship. 
And so this narrative then moves on from the search for the donkeys to Saul's interaction with Samuel. And I think the same picture is portrayed here. Much of Samuel's words and his actions were for the purpose of encouraging Saul in his eventual ascension to the kingship of Israel. Samuel honors him by inviting him to a feast. And at that feast, he seats him in a place of honor. And as he's seated in that place of honor, he's offered the choicest portion of meat. And so Samuel is is honoring Saul and blessing him. And the next day, the prophet over all of Israel tells Saul that he would be king. If that's not enough, he lays out a series of signs that would confirm this, that indeed Saul would be king. And then Samuel pours a flask of oil on Saul, symbolizing to Saul God's divine claim on him, as well as picturing the coming of the Spirit upon him to enable and to accomplish what God had planned for him. And being honored and being given signs of confirmation and experiencing this affirming ritual, you would think Saul might be ready, willing, and able, eager to step into God's plan for him. What more validation could a handsome, well-to-do young man need in order for him to show some initiative and some eagerness? But in spite of all that, having seen the signs come about, even as Samuel prophesied, having been honored by the prophet, having been sealed with oil, Saul lacks initiative. He lacks boldness to step into what was prepared for him. We see this at the end of the narrative. It ends with his truthful but deceptive recalling of the events of the past few days when his uncle questioned him. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So in this story of donkeys lost and found, I believe the narrator delivers a portrait of Israel's soon-to-be king. This is a man whose tribe and physical appearance actually raise doubts about his fittingness for the throne. We see here a Benjamite who is incapable and incompetent, who lacks perseverance and lacks initiative, who suffers from a lack of preparedness. We see in Saul a man who, in spite of Israel's greatest living leader's attempts to encourage him, remains unsure and insecure and somewhat dishonest about what is transpiring. I think the portrait we get of Saul is this is a man who leaves a lot to be desired. And so this is the tale of a king, but this passage tells the tale of another king. Our second point is the control and compassion of God. The author of 1 Samuel portrays God as the king of the universe who sovereignly controls all things and who is generously compassionate towards his people. The picture the author of 1 Samuel paints of God is in stark contrast 
to that of Saul. In last week's passage and sermon, we saw that the Israel's desire to have a king like the pagan nations was a rejection of God. Those are God's own words. And it's like the author now wants the reader to understand what exactly this is going to look like. Israel, if you would prefer a king who acts like a pagan over your covenant Lord, then let's take a look at this decision. Let's see who you're going to get and let's take a look at who you are rejecting. And so we see in this passage, God presented as sovereignly in control of all things. Now, before we get to that information presented in 1 Samuel, let's just quickly take a survey, a quick survey across the Old Testament to see what it says about God's sovereignty, about his control over things. Scripture indicates that God is sovereign and in control over the natural world. We read in Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the cloud rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is sovereign and in control over the natural world. God is also in control over human history. We read in Psalm 33, verse 10 through 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God is sovereign and in control of human history. He's also sovereign over human decisions. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And though God can in no way be made culpable or blamable, he is even sovereign over the sins of humans. Isaiah 63, 17 says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Now in this very brief and nowhere near exhaustive survey of scripture, we see that God rules and reigns sovereignly over all things. And not only is this evident in scripture as we've just seen, but it also is clear in today's passage specifically. Saul and his servant, after speaking to some young women who give them instructions on how to find Samuel, run into Samuel in what some might, people might call a chance encounter. As the sovereign king of the universe, God providentially brought about this encounter between Saul and his servant. There was no chance involved here. Now this type of chance meeting, it's not uncommon in our lives, is it? I think without over-spiritualizing any of it, I imagine many of us, if not all of us, could describe numerous situations in our lives that came across as rather uncanny coincidences that we would properly and should ascribe to God's providence. You can see this in many places. You can see this in history. You'll find many examples in history of what appear to be serendipitous meetings between people. I read about one this week, two of my favorite authors. These two Oxford professors had a chance encounter in a staff meeting at Oxford. 
They weren't in the same department. And they met at this staff meeting. They actually got off to a rather lukewarm start. And yet they quickly realized that they shared a passion for languages and poetry and myth and storytelling. Both these men were aspiring novelists and they played the role of each other's first readers. Whatever one of them would write, the other one would be first to read it. It seems that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien's chance meeting wasn't chance. It was clearly God's providence because we see them impacting the world through their fictional literature with their Christian themes in ways that very few have. Today's passage removes any discussion of a chance meeting or fortune being involved. We know this because immediately following the description of the meeting of Saul, Samuel's servant, and Samuel, the narrator tells us about events that happened the day before. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'll send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. This was an act of a God who can control all things, even the meeting of different people. We also see God ruling and reigning over all things. When he speaks to Saul through Samuel of these events that were gonna happen in the near future. Samuel tells Saul that the donkeys he was looking for had been found. He tells him that he would receive food from men going to Bethel. He tells him that the spirit would come upon him and that he would prophesy. And then we read in verse nine that all these signs came to pass that day. This is a powerful display of the sovereign control that God exercises over the world and its inhabitants. And really this dramatic display of the controlling power of Israel's supreme king is in great contrast to the incompetency and weakness of Saul. Israel had rejected God for a king like the pagan nations. They wanted to be like the nations that surrounded them. And the author of 1 Samuel wants to make the difference conspicuous. The greatness of Israel's divine monarch is also displayed through the compassion he shows. So not only is he a powerful, all-controlling, sovereign God, but he is a compassionate God. And he shows that both to wayward Israel and to their pagan-like soon-to-be king. When God speaks to Samuel, revealing to him the events involving Saul that would occur in short order four times, he refers to Israel as my people. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, perhaps that fourfold repetition is to assert his ownership and his sovereign right over the people that he has redeemed from Egypt. But certainly those words were words of the covenant. That Israel would be his people and he would be their God. This has to be in view. And so in spite of Israel's rejection of God, the merciful and compassionate Yahweh had not rejected Israel. Also in these instructions to Samuel, the Lord says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God's people had rejected him, but he sees them. 
and he hears them. This isn't just communicating to them awareness, it's communicating God's care and God's compassion and God's desire to protect and provide for his people. This was further communicated when Samuel anoints Saul and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. God, though he's been rejected, is still still concerned about his people that they be saved from the hand of their enemies. Now, after Saul was anointed by God through his mouthpiece, Samuel, God graciously gives Saul those validating signs. And he got those signs before he could even return to his home. Imagine if you were trying to get a job. You applied for that job. After you applied for that job, someone comes up to you and says, you're going to get this job. And to confirm that, here's three things that are going to happen to you so that you're sure that you'll get that job. And that person tells you the three things. And lo and behold, that same day, Three different things happen. I mean, I think this is God's graciousness to Saul. I'm calling you to something and I'm going to confirm and affirm that this is what you're supposed to do. And remember that Saul is God's illegitimate replacement. If you've ever been replaced, I've been replaced, it happened to me in sports, I'm not too excited about the success of the person who replaces me. And yet God is compassionate. He cares about Saul. He he wants him to do well. One final piece of evidence that God is compassionate and gracious is seen in what is really probably the most contested verse in this passage, verse 9, that says God gave Saul another heart. There's much disagreement uh, among commentators on what that phrase means. But what I think it means is this. God will equip Saul, equip him in his inner being, in his heart, with the gifts and with the aptitude that he needs so that he can fulfill his commission as king. God, who's been rejected by his people, enables and empowers Saul to do for the people of Israel what Saul would not have been able to do otherwise. So this narrative portrays Israel's future king as frail and as fallen, as unimpressive and unprincipled. And at the same time, this narrative portrays Israel's true but rejected king as sovereign in his control and supreme in his compassion. It conveys the idea that in spite of what the monarchy will bring and where it will ultimately take the nation, and who is ultimately in power, it cannot undermine the true royal ruler. It cannot threaten God's control, nor can it thwart God's compassion. Now, the king that would follow Saul would comprehend that God was sovereignly in control, and he would comprehend the compassion of God. He would experience God's power, and he would experience God's pity. He would experience God's greatness, and he would experience God's graciousness. 
You see the future, the king, the king that would come after Saul, Israel's greatest king, would sing these words. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Whereas Saul, Israel's soon-to-be king, the man that they rejected God for, he was frail, he was fallen. But the Lord, the Lord of Israel, was sovereign in his control and steadfast in his compassion. And this is the contrast that the author of 1 Samuel wants to bring to our attention. Now, as we finish this morning, let me make a couple applications as we consider the great contrast between the fallen and frail human leader, Saul, and the divine king of Israel, Yahweh. Our first application pertains to the gospel and how the control of God and the compassion of God is seen so clearly in it. If we are to understand accurately God's work in this world, we must reconcile in our mind and our hearts that God is both sovereign and loving. He's both in control and compassionate. And as many of you know, these truths are often in a great tension in our lives. They're a sometimes hard and difficult thing to understand that God has ordained everything in our lives and he loves us greatly. But in the gospel, we can see these great truths. In Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, God was sovereign and in control over the most heinous actions that have ever taken place. He was sovereign over the suffering and death of God. The Son, it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet Peter would go on to say that the death of Jesus If we believe in him and trust in him, his death, his suffering, that evil, evil act was for our forgiveness. And it was so that we might receive the Holy Spirit, which is to say that the death and resurrection of Jesus was an act of compassion and mercy. And so as God sovereignly controlled that, he will simultaneously showing and demonstrating his great love. When you are tempted, particularly in the light of suffering, perhaps your suffering or the suffering of someone else, 
when you're tempted to deny either God's sovereignty in that situation or his great love for you, look to the gospel and resist that temptation. I need to finish up here. The second application is for us to see how this story points to Jesus. And one of the ways we can see Jesus in this story is by considering God's willingness to work with and work for frail and fallen human beings. God was willing to help Saul in spite of Saul's moral weakness, in spite of Saul's sinfulness, in spite of any lack of virtue. Well, this morning, let us thank God that Jesus, being God himself, is also one who partners with and participates in the life of fallen and frail human beings for such is each one of us. It wasn't for the righteous that Jesus came. It wasn't for the righteous that he was sent, but he came to save sinners, according to Luke 5.32. Jesus has a heart for the suffering and for the sinful. This is seen in Isaiah's prophecy, which delivers a heartwarming image. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. When we realize that Jesus is for sinners and for sufferers, and for that reason he came, we recognize that he is one who we should put our faith in and our trust. And each one of us here is called to that response. Jesus is for you if you will look to him. If you will believe in him, put your faith and your trust in him. And the final application I make this morning is that unlike Saul, we all need to trust in God's word and in God's spirit. Saul heard God's words through the prophet Samuel. Saul was empowered by God's spirit when his spirit came upon him, but also